about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way, it might be really good. Wow. To it's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Avengers Endgame, released in April 2019, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach detailing his favourite cinema for Sight & Sound magazine, that's how it was put, Martin Scorsese revealing how he almost didn't direct Raging Bull, but then he did, or Jennifer Aniston collecting a People's Choice Award for People's Icon of 2019 instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Avengers Endgame when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. Not a second wasted, not a scene that feels overlong, and how fantastic that it's Ant-Man's goofiness rather than everyone else's meaningful heroics that saves the day. A line drawn without being a full stop, and that triumphant defiant line-up. Wow. That's what I had to say about it, though. And joining me to give his thoughts on Avengers Endgame is writer and quizmaster Ben Baker. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me at Ben Baker Books on Twitter, where I post all the sorts of things. I've just got a new book out, which is called I Was Bored on Christmas Day, 90s Telly, from Ant and Dec to Zig and Zag. I also do a podcast with regular guest on here. Basically, is there an Iron Man film out? Get Catterall on. Come on, let's chat. Okay, so before we go any further, Ben, what happens in Avengers Endgame? Well, which film? Do you want me to talk about the harrowing drama of lost grief and familial bonds? Do you want me to talk about the knockabout, getting the band back together, time travel, heist comedy? Or do you want me to talk about the balls to the wall, ultimate action battle war film? Admittedly one with talking trees and spidered men. You know, which of them do you want me to do? Because they're all in there. I think we're going to cover all of them, frankly. But normally I'd ask at this point what you knew about this film before you went to see it. But it really seems, as you've mentioned, a bit redundant in this case. So I'm going to go down a slightly different route, which is given that this broke all box office records. I mean, in the midst of all that pathetic carping about the Marvel movies having no soul and being like a theme park and, oh, for the love of God, shut up. And it was arguably the most recent big cinema event before circumstances sort of dictated that we can't have them anymore. So I'm going to ask how and when you first saw it, because I saw it on a date, and, well, let's just say that that story is best saved for the version of it that's on my site. You can find it in the article about Guardians of the Galaxy 2. When I came out with that, I tweeted, Avengers Endgame didn't feel like three hours to me, and I never see people complaining about how long films are when they're worthy depression fests about how difficult it is to get legal representation in Latin American slum towns, but I believe you saw it with someone who will be, well, as we've already established, quite familiar to It's Good Except It Sucks listeners. Well, uh, to put it in context, in 2018 I was in a relationship with someone who had kids and their dad always got to take them to see all the big action movies but for some reason they'd not got to see 
see Infinity War. So we actually went. And it was pretty late on, actually, in the run. I'd say it was actually probably about a week before it came out. The fact that we saw it so late and nothing was spoiled at all. We'd not heard anything. And, you know, we sat, we laughed, we teared up. And, you know, we sat in silence as the end credits went, as the kids were there going, is it going to be all right? And I'm going, oh, there's a post credit sequence. I'm sure it'll smooth it all over. Then I had to explain what a pager was. We had a very quiet drive home. But yeah, it did make me think how amazing it was that we didn't have any of it spoiled, despite probably about a two-month wait. Cut to 2019, and as you say, I did go to see it with Phil Catterall on its opening weekend. Probably about 15 screens showing it, like a tandem, you know, all overlapping. And the cinema, obviously, was packed, and we got seats, and because... It's a three-hour film. Phil decided for a last-minute toilet stop. And when he came back, he just had a face like he'd just received some horrible news. Turns out when he was in there, a different showing left and went to the bathroom. And the very talkative crowd started talking about what had just happened in the film, including what we'll discover, a rather large spoiler indeed. He said, I think it's been spoiled for me. And I'm like, oh, I hope it hasn't. And... Yeah, yeah, it was. (laughs) So I just find it really interesting that the stakes seem to be way higher on this one. And it's also fascinating, as you alluded to there, that it's actually just under a year between Infinity War and Endgame coming out. And in that time, sort of building on the cliffhanger Infinity War, we'd had Ant-Man and the Wasp, Captain Marvel, and a series of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where this wasn't quite kind of cemented until the last season of it, but basically they dodged the snap through, I won't spoil it, but reasons that become obvious when you watch it. To have that much content between two massive films that come out a year apart is quite the achievement, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We do live in a a spoiler culture, and obviously the things that happen in this film, as we'll get to, are as big as there's ever been in the MCU. But it's weird how, you know, no one thought, oh, I hope nobody spoils Thor The Dark World for me. Well, we open with something that I don't think anyone was inclined to spoil to anyone ever, which is one of those scenes nobody ever asked for with Hawkeye and his family. He'd not been in Infinity War. They mentioned he's under house arrest, but here we get to see him playing with his kids who all appear to be older than Jeremy Renner. (laughs) And then they all disappear apart from him. I mean, what do you think of that as an opening to a film? Do you know what? I actually think, as boring as Hawkeye and his family have been in previous films i think you need to see how it affects people on a very ground level you know it's like because all we've seen it through the eyes of is super powered or you know absolutely incredible characters and so to go oh what and turn around nobody's there you know after a nice family picnic turns into well no family it's definitely not how i expected it to open no because then we get the proper opening which is dear mr fantasy by traffic sort of creeps in slowly and i remember thinking what is that doing there and it becomes obvious it's on star lord zoo up on the milano where iron man and nebula are trapped on the blu-ray of guardians of galaxy 2 there is a longer version of the scene with the zoom where craglin recommends traffic to stop ah. which is a great scene but that is kind of a missing explanation for this but they're basically just trying to pass time knowing that well, i mean nebula would have survived it but tony stark was on the way out well yeah firstly it is a great soundtrack i mean the 
saying a Marvel film has a great soundtrack now is not a terribly controversial thing. But yeah, it is a film based around fun combinations. And the first one is Tony and the Blue Meanie Nebula playing daft games. But they're also kind of sharing a... a it's sort of teaching her a humanity, which will become very important throughout the film. Yes, I mean, I love that they give her this thread of humanity. I mean, the bit that really struck me that almost goes unnoticed is later on when they're all arriving at Avengers HQ, when she calls War Machine on their intercom, she calls him Rhodey, oh, yeah. which is what his close friends yeah. call him. You know, it's not just Rhodes or whatever, like she would normally address people. I thought that was a lovely moment and there's another lovely moment we'll come to in a second because obviously Captain Marvel shows up rescues them drags them back to Earth there's all kinds of tearful reunions and tearful realising that other people had disappeared in the middle of it she stood on her own and Rocket who's also lost all the Guardians appears and holds her hand yeah it's beautiful which is weird, because again, I think the people who go, Marvel, soulless, blah, 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 what have you, it's like, yes, it's a CGI raccoon holding a, a Scottish woman's hand with a blue face, but it's, <laughs> you know, obviously the building up of all these films has allowed us to become more attached to them than, say, your regular action comedy style characters it's nicely underplayed which a lot of things are in here considering what a bombastic film it is it really handles the, the slips between moods really well i think well and it's so big and as you say bombastic that there wasn't really room for everyone even across both films and that leads into when they're assessing what's happened in the avengers hq there's a very interesting scene where they flick past everyone who was lost in the snap on sort of a projector showing their profiles and you get to find out what happened to some people who weren't seen in this or Infinity War. It comes, for example, Eric Selvig has been snapped, Shuri, Betty Ross. By extension, we can think that Everett Ross hasn't been, Howard the Duck hasn't been. But the interesting omission here is that, I mean, obviously they initially considered having the TV characters in and then thought there were too many characters wrote them out. It's interesting they didn't just slot them back into this, you know, have, say, Luke Cage come up or something, just as a kind of throwaway acknowledgement. But maybe there's just too much going on. Well, as we say, it is a three-hour film. I'll be honest, I was apprehensive. I didn't think I'd want to sit there for three hours, but as you said at the start, doesn't feel it. And yet there's so much going on, as you say. And obviously, when they find Thanos, it should be this cathartic moment after everything's happened, and he's just put a ring on his allotment. <laughs> Because he's done what he set out to do. And he's offing. He's pretty straightforward. And it's almost a shock that it's just so simple. In fact, it's literally a, a snap. When that happens, that's how films help. You go, a bad guy did this. We're going to get revenge on the bad guy. And then they get the revenge on the bad guy in the first 10 minutes. And you go, oh, it really threw me. I'm like, I had no idea. So when the next caption came up, I was like, wow. And obviously that caption is five years later. And it is just before we move on from Thanos getting off because, you know, the film moves on from it really quickly. The one shocking detail in it is, because obviously he's used the stones to destroy the stones so they can't just undo everything. And that's why we jump forward five years because they've not been able to do anything but move on. When Thor beheads him, a bit of what flies off him lands in Nebula's eye. You know, she might hate him, but it's her father. And a... <laughs> 
dislodged piece of I don't know blood and flesh or whatever. She has to wipe off her face. That's yeah, that that's pretty extreme. for a film that families were going to see. That's a bit strong, yeah, I think. Yeah, for a twelve or whatever it was. Yeah, it does come up five years later, and we get to see how everyone's dealing with it. Again, it's not a thing I expected. You, you've got these support groups for those left behind with lots of fan centric cameos. Tony's now a dad. Bruce has worked out a way of becoming a mix of him and the Hulk. Hawkeye's who cares obviously we're building up to Scott Lang getting out of the quantum realm which happens at the end of Ant-Man and the Wasp it should be like oh how could we speed this film up you take all that out wouldn't you but without that it's nothing without showing the effects you don't get the reward of the undoing exactly because I think in some ways it shows at the same time as moving on they sort of fail to move on as well they're still clinging in some ways to their past I mean the big one is that Captain America running that kind of grief support group which as you mentioned amongst many people in that support group there's Joe Russo one of the writers and producers of the MCU and Jim Starlin the writer who created Thanos it's a callback both to Captain America the Winter Soldier and the Punisher. Obviously, he wasn't involved in the support group in the Punisher, but that was all about non-participation. And here's non-participation in the Winter Soldier. And suddenly he's leading one. That's like he's trying to cling on to... Well, he's not trying to cling on to memories of Frank Castle. God knows. But he's trying to cling on to memories of Sam Wilson. And really, is Bruce Banner managing to coexist with himself and the Hulk? That is kind of... Whatever the opposite of moving on is. Yeah, (laughs) I suppose it's interesting that it is Captain America because he's already suffered the loss of one life. So this is his second sort of massive shift in his existence. And speaking of not moving on... Black Widow is kind of trying to continue running the Avengers, mostly with a group of people who've got no allegiance to her, no interest in taking orders, and refuse a lot of her ideas. I mean, particularly, a lot of people said this is a setup for the Submariner showing up in the future, now that apparently Marvel have the rights to him again. There's mention of disruption on the ocean floor. She wants to investigate it, and the Koye says, we deal with it by not dealing with it. That's what she's facing. Yeah. When, as but a lot of the listeners know, when Doctor Who went off air in 1989, there was all these side adventures, what supposedly happened in pockets of time. And you do think there's a market there for what happened in that five years, you know, that ragtag kind of bunch of people who aren't really getting on. That would be a whole thread in its own. It would, and I really want to see Rock in Nebula finding that bin. <laughs> but yeah, it, it does make you think, wow, because all these characters have never really interacted before. You know, I mean, they've been in maybe like a scene, but they've like to actually have, as you say, characters from Black Panther and Guardians and all of the things that have come before. It does bring it together as a universe. But at the end of that meeting, just before we come on to the thing that changes everything, the one thing that bothers me is that it doesn't ring true that War Machine has been sent to investigate Hawkeye's whereabouts and suddenly has this extensive knowledge of gangland assassinations and is able to tell which ones are by him and which aren't. Now this is completely a theory on my part but if they toyed with having the TV characters in I wonder if at some point that was originally they contacted the Punisher who did a kind of that ain't me that's definitely your guy. It just doesn't make sense that Rhodey would suddenly have that analytical view of it but then we get the more interesting thing which is while her and Captain America seem more interested in discussing a sandwich over in the car lot I'll let you explain this Scott Lang 
Ant-Man turns up and they're saying, is that an old recording? And he goes, no, that's at the gate right now. Because he's been out of action for five years as people who've seen Ant-Man and the Wasp know they were testing how to get in and out of the quantum realm. Obviously, the snap happens. It's very inconvenient timing. (laughs) He's like, right, pull me out now. Um... And everyone's gone. It's basically, he only gets out because of a... Is it a rat? <laughs> basically, like, steps on something and he gets out and he goes, Hey, I've got these pin particles and we could do something with those because science... Who does a science? Do we know anyone who is good at a science? And it turns out there is a man, but he's gone off grid a bit. And there's a lovely kind of nod in there for anyone who knows the comics universe. When he's trying to pitch the idea to Captain America, and Black Widow, he keeps saying "What if," which is the name of the. Well, there is a yeah, series of this coming up on yeah, Disney yeah. Plus, the alternate universe Marvel comics, which I think they drop that in things like Agents of Shield as well as an episode of that called "What If," and that's basically saying, "Yeah, we're going to be messing about brazenly with alternate realities. What are you going to do about it?" Yeah, as I said, we've got Scott turning up, which suddenly is like an injection of hope. No pun intended again. But yeah, this is the second thing that bothers me, is that if his van, with the quantum realm housed in it, how come it had been in that impounded car lot, watched over by Chang from Arrested Development? Oh yeah, there's, there's, there's <laughs> it's two It's impossible there's... to tell whether it's actually Chang or not, because it has been established in the previous film. Community, along with The Wire and Arrested Development, does exist in the Marvel Cinematic Yeah, universe. there's two more community cast members ticked off. We've got Ken Jeong and Yvette Nicole Brown as well. Slowly but getting wouldn't through they have been looking for Hank Pym's equipment, wouldn't they have tailed that van? Well... That is still a question at the back of my well, mind. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, to be fair, I've not thought about that until you said it, but yeah. I want my City World £10.50 back. But you are right, it is a moment of hope because the first thing he does, more or less, after trudging through the streets, noticing they're all deserted, looking at a memorial, the first thing he does is funny when he sees his own name yeah. on there. And he starts bringing actual proper jokes into it, whereas previously it had been depressing rhymes remarks. Yeah, it's been, you know, black humour, survival humour. But obviously as we've discussed in the previous podcast Ant-Man is very, very funny. That definitely bleeds through to this and yeah, it is a little bit like, you know, your Wizard of Oz, it was black and white and he turns up and it becomes colour. I'll come back to whose film I think it is, but Paul Rudd plays a blinder in this. He is absolutely brilliant. He is, and it, again, as we'll come back to, it's amazing that they managed to keep the flavour of everyone's contrasting individual film styles running at the same same time. Even now some minor characters like Bucky, they don't break character. I say minor, he's minor in this because he doesn't turn up to the end, but they really, really did manage that. And nowhere is that more evident in the scenes where they discuss what to do about his plan, where Bruce Banner wants to be on board but doesn't think it's possible. Tony Stark thinks it's possible but doesn't want to get involved because he's got a family to look after until he sees a photo of Peter Parker, has a real moment and then decides to get involved. But when they discuss it, everyone's chipping in with their own approach and it's a brilliant bit where they debate the laws of time travel as depicted by films I start reading off big lists of things like Bill and Ted's Excellent (laughs) Adventure Time Cop (laughs) Hot Tub Time Machine which Sebastian Stan was in which is a bit mind bending but Scott contributes to that thinking Die Hard and then says oh no that's not one (laughs) as well as being funny is that a comment on Die Hard as a Christmas film oh I never thought about that but yeah I'm on board yeah they come up with a plan which weird makes absolute sense even though it's nonsense I mean I love 
what Doctor Who dubbed as timey-wimey nonsense, but I genuinely love when people use time travel in an interesting way. Not only do we use time travel in this, we revisit former films. Cap, Hulk, Tony and Scott go to New York 2012 during the first Avengers film. Thor and Rocket go to, th- well, Thor the Dark World. That's in Asgard 2013, presumably. I'm not quite sure what the actual year would be. Clint and Natasha go to Vormir. 2014, which is somewhere we've not seen much of, but obviously becomes very important. And as I said, you've got Nebula and Rhodey, which is a great, bizarre partnering, but it works really well. But before they can plan it, though, they have to bring in two other people. Hawkeye is now, although he's not named as such, he's basically being Ronin from when he was Ronin in the comic. Yeah, yeah, he's a ruthless assassin, yeah. Executing the guy who was the leader of the Temple Others in Lost. (laughs) I took some satisfaction from that. yeah. No, I can see that. <laughs> and also, Thor, who's let himself go, <laughs> is living with Korg and Meek, playing video games all the time, while Valkyrie's taken over as the ruler of Asgard, basically, which is now apparently based in Norway somewhere. Yeah, it's kind of a seaside town. And he's become Lebowski Thor, <laughs> with long hair, fat <laughs> Which, belly. when you think about it, Jeff Bridges was in Iron yeah. Man. Oh, it, all t- it all ties up. It all ties up. And then they have that big meeting where, again, everyone stays in their own character, about where the stones were and how to get them. People do often talk about Thor's monologue about the ether, the reality stone, which is funny, but for me, the greatest moment is Rocket jumping up on the table and saying, Quill said he stole the power stone from Morag, to which the reply is, is Morag a person? No, it's a planet. And then you've got the Hulk, Black Widow and Iron Man all sort of lying down exhausted, eating junk food. Looks like they're drunk trying to work out the last bit of it, and they realise, after being rude about Doctor Strange, the three of the stones were all in New York at the exact same time. Yeah, uh, which obviously becomes target number one for the time travel I love so much. As I, say, I think it's really interesting because I, I love time travel stuff when it's done smartly and stuff. And not only is this done in an incredibly interesting way, it also goes back to previous films, which, you know, I, I think probably only Back to the Future's done that, where you have to sort of cut around what already happened. Target number one is New York 2012 during the first Avengers film. And that's where Cap Hulk, Tony and Scott go. So that's funny because the evolved Hulk, if you will, sees his old self, who's just this <laughs> raging out, you know, smashing things character and he has to get into character as it <laughs> gets a very unconvincing <laughs> <laughs> So obviously they're going to find because New York is, is indeed where three of the stones are. And sort of a sideways, you've got the others going to different places. <laughs> Lebowski Thor and Rocket Cutter Asgard during Thor the Dark World. We know that because we see someone who is not Natalie Portman's head go into a, go into a room. But that does bring in Rene Russo's character as Thor's mother. And we get a nice scene there because obviously she's died in Thor's timeline. But he gets to reconnect with his mother who knows he's displayed and he gets Mjolnir back as well yeah it's all about his worthiness again and then Clint and Natasha go to Vormir where I don't know do you want to lead on that one yeah I mean that's established in Infinity War when Thanos sacrificed Gamora to get the soul stones never explain why this happened or how the Red Skull ended up there and how he knew he was the guardian of this stone but you have to give up somebody you love in order to get it there's a lot of arguing between about who will basically sacrifice themselves yeah. and she eventually because obviously she's the smarter agent tricks Hawkeye into it's wrong to say letting her fall over a cliff 
but she manipulates yeah. it so that that happens. Yeah. And I say that's it for Black Widow, but a later film does give rise to an interesting theory that that might not have actually been her, but we'll save that for Ooh. future films, Ooh, I think. that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's quite a harrowing scene, but we've got funny scenes around. Well, yeah, so we've, we've got Nebula and Rhodey, that strange <laughs> double act going to Morag, which is when Guardians Volume 1 is. But it turns out she's got a weird connection to her previous slavish to her father Thanos self from that film where she was a baddie. You know, you keep cutting between these strange tones, but it works. As I say, it's basically an hour in the middle of the film cutting between these timelines, and the most fun is probably in New York where obviously Hulk goes after the time stone, and that's our cue for a bit of Doctor Strange. It's not a flashback, because it's before, because Doctor Strange isn't Doctor Strange yet. Tilda Swinton's Ancient One has it with her, and she passes it on to Doctor Strange. There's a big fight where she punches Hulk out of his body and stuff, and it's really well done. But yeah, I think the most fun is there's a heist, shall we say. I mean, again, a heist film in the middle of a time travel film. <laughs> uh, so that's where the most cutting around the previous films happens. Yeah, because it's technically the end of Avengers Assemble when they're kind of clearing up, but using bits of the original film and the belief bits of the later scenes, they're bringing so much else because they depict the plan is to try and get Loki's scepter, which has the Mind Stone, and the Tesseract, which has the Space Stone, away from when they're being acquisitioned by S.H.I.E.L.D. at the end of the film. And so they're bring in a couple of things like the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents from Captain America the Winter Soldier who were also in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. series. The fight in the lift from the Winter Soldier comes into it. All kinds of things like that are brought in. That is such a tense scene because you're expecting it to kick off like in that but he pretends to be working for Hydra and that's that. that Oh that's such a good scene. That is again payoff. And there's also Loki. It's based around they're trying to cause distraction while Loki's being taken away by Thor and S.H.I.E.L.D. are trying to say he's our prisoner. Now, Tom Hiddleston has probably less than a dozen words across his two cameos in this film, and he absolutely steals it both times. When he appears in the Asgard bit, just throwing a cup up and down, almost, well, I say in the background, is technically he's in the foreground, but I remember the cinema erupting with laughter. How does he do it? How is he that good? He has obviously proved himself throughout the films. Obviously, he, he escapes, which that's going to be interesting. That's gonna Is that going to lead on to one of the TV series? Yeah, Loki on Disney+, Plus because he during the distraction, he grabs the Tesseract and just disappears in a puff of smoke. Yeah. Because the reason they fail is that they've more or less got everything, because Cap's got the Scepter and they nearly have the Tesseract, but the Hulk in the original timeline had been made to use the stairs and bursts out shouting Ah, stairs! And kicks it away into Loki's yeah. path and... And he does one, which means they have to go even further back in time to S.H.I.E.L.D. in 1970 where Tony's about to be born <laughs> and obviously he has to interact with his father Howard Stark who we've seen you know, in more flashback bits but he really gets a really gets some good time on screen in this one and again it's one of them things it's like oh you know I can't imagine the kids are very interested in Tony reconnecting with his sort of not close father but it's really nice it plays really well and obviously since Tony's become a dad you know you get to contrast those two styles whilst also doing a bit of ha do you remember the 70s stew? Yeah, there are some actually pretty good 70s references in it. They're all just slapped on. But the most interesting one is because there's a lot of de-aging in this yeah. bit, including a de-aged 
Stan Lee in what was, although it wasn't his last film cameo, it was technically his last actual yeah. cameo. The really interesting one is that they thought, well, Michael Douglas in the 70s was a big star in Streets of San Francisco. Let's make him look like yeah. that. And he looks exactly like he's just walked off the set of it's it. It's very well You done. don't actually think that is Michael Douglas with effects on him. Yeah. You just take it in completely. Yeah, considering the uncanny valley of a lot of stuff when they were still developing that as an effect. Yeah, they've really nailed it now. And obviously they're there to get the Tesseract and during their ploy to get hold of it while avoiding Shirley from Community who again is more or less in character. Steve finds himself in Peggy Carter's office where this wasn't really noticed until it came out on Blu-ray and DVD but she's having a conversation on the phone about something that's happening in the UK involving Braddock which is clearly Brian Braddock, the original Captain, Captain Britain, Britain yeah. which lends weight to my theory that, you know, they might feature him in flashbacks, but they're going to go Pfizer Hussein, the current Captain Britain, which would be great, I think. When there were rumours about it entering the MCU a while back, Twitter suddenly exploded with people saying, OMG, are they trying to appease the Brexiteers now? But <sighs> do you know anything about Captain... <sighs> well, I say he, she yeah. now, a Muslim yeah. woman, but he fought the National Front in the 70s. Yeah, moving swiftly on, uh, I would say. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because we do move swiftly on, because they get hold of the Tesseract and they're about to go, but we get the most interesting cameo in the whole film, which is Jarvis from the Agent Carter series, appears to drive Howard yeah. Stark off. Now, if anyone's not seen Agent Carter, it only ran to two series, but it was brilliant. It was basically what Peggy and Howard did after the war. Yeah. And both in their own way trying to make it in a world that wasn't geared towards them anymore. I mean, I know Howard is a genius and had lots of money, but he still had difficulty fitting yeah, in outsider. in the change world. It's a lovely series, but Jarvis is an amazing character. I think he's based on Steed from, you know, the other The Avengers. There's a brilliant payoff in it when the immense loyalty he displays towards Mrs. Jarvis, who isn't seen for a long time, who's depicted as being like a delicate flower. She is anything but. Let's just <laughs> leave it at that. But it was lovely to see him in here, considering, for obvious reasons, how little back and forth there was from TV to film, whereas the other way, it happened quite a lot. Yeah. That was a, a lovely nod, I So obviously they get the stones and they return to the present. Then obviously it's time to to make things right. And again, just to deal with this very quickly, there's a lovely character moment that virtually nobody mentions, which is because obviously they decide eventually the Hulk should use the gauntlet because it's got gamma radiation in it yeah. and it would have the least effect on him. They all kind of shield themselves in different ways. Like Scott immediately panics and puts the Ant-Man helmet on. Cap's just sort of fronting it out, just stood there. And Hawkeye hides behind the laser shield Iron Man puts up. 
they even conceal themselves from the potential effect of activating the Infinity Stones in character. Yeah. Thor stands in front of Rocket, doesn't he? Like, ushers in behind him. Again, I just think it's, you know, it's paid for investing in all those films. You, more than anybody else, have lived in this universe for the last year putting this podcast together, and so you're seeing all these little connections being made, and I think that's brilliant. I think that for the fact that they can still do that in what is effectively big family action movie of the year. Let's be honest, Titanic was the previous biggest box office hit of all time, wasn't it? I think Avatar was just behind or just at the time or something like that. At no point do you think, I'd love to go back and see if there's anything I missed in that. There's there's not. There's less, probably. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, they activate the stones, they bring everyone back that was lost in the snap, but they've also, through, as you mentioned, the connection between the two nebulas, Thanos has found a way through to the present to try and get the stones and do it again properly this time and wipe out all of existence and replace it with new life. And there is a battle that follows that lasts well over 20 minutes, in which, again, everyone is completely in character throughout. I mean, yeah, as I say, it's, as I said earlier, it's like, it's a big war movie. This is yet going over the top, all for glory. It's genuinely punch the air stuff. But it starts in quite a really grim way, because when Thanos attacks their HQ, half of them are stuck underground, with only Ant-Man to save them. And, obviously, the big three, Iron Man, Cap, and Thor, are trying to fight Thanos, who is making mincemeat of Yeah, I mean, he tears through the Avengers building with... No, it makes you think, oh shit, oh, they can actually, you know, because again, these are superheroes, you don't think, it reminds you that one, some of them aren't, (laughs) and two, you know, taken off guard, they can be just as easily attacked as anyone. So yeah, obviously we have this big punch-up, if you will, and it does start small, and it does just slowly build, build and build as more people not only return... But get in the mix, if you will. Yeah, because it's that fantastic scene where it looks like there is just Captain America left standing between Thanos' army and the end of everything. And he's actually very severely injured because he kind of straps his arm up to stop bleeding. And then suddenly, on his intercom, he hears Cap It Sam on your left, which is a callback to the Winter Soldier. And everyone starts appearing out of Doctor Strange's kind of vortexy vortexy things yeah. to stick on the timey-wimey yeah. thing. And it's just this incredibly empowering sequence where even everyone like Drax and Mantis look heroic and look like ready yeah. for action. Yeah. One by one, they all appear. Howard the Duck appears in the <laughs> middle of it, which is fantastic. Yeah. Doctor Strange says, is that everyone? And Wong says, what you wanted more. <laughs> That's just... Yes! I remember I felt like a six-year-old in the cinema. I had my fists clenched. I was punching the air. It was just like, yeah. And, you know, again, that's why I'm glad I got to see it in the cinema because there was just a big swell of happiness. And even though, as things will progress, there was sadness as well. Yeah, they handle it so well. And while they're trying to repel Thanos' forces, and we should say as well, it's been established now that Captain America can wield Mjolnir and Stormbreaker, which he uses both of in the fight, but they're basically trying to keep Thanos' forces at bay while they get the gauntlet as far away as possible. And so there's this weird game of pass the parcel with it, where there's a couple of amazing moments 
moments, including Hawkeye's corner, the Black Panther says, Clint, give it to me. Which, you know, when you consider in Civil War, he tried to introduce himself and Black Panther said, I don't yeah. care. And suddenly he's calling it by his name. There's some hilarious bits with Spider-Man when he's got it. He's been... Interestingly, he's being dragged about in the air by the women. Well, that's it. There's a brilliant scene where it's just all the female protagonists like, yeah, we've got this. And it's just, again, another punchy air moment. It's just like, for better or worse, the Marvel world does have some amazingly strong female yeah. characters in it. And more than ever, now is the time to see that. Yeah, there is all this incredible stuff going on that you actually have to keep re-watching it to see. I mean, there are funny bits with tracks attacking people in the background. Yeah, it's weird how all the stuff going on in the background doesn't distract from the main bit because it's just a bit of a, well, a clusterfuck in a lot of ways. It's just everyone going at it. Yeah, and there's all kinds of bits like there's a reunion with Star-Lord and Gamora where, being a bit indelicate about it, she kicks him in the box, which some people might say is deserved. There's Ant-Man and the Wasp trying to get the gauntlet to the Quantum Realm tunnel in their van, which just turned up in the middle of the battlefield when Scott sounded the horn remotely. Where, again, there's a callback to the fact that she mocked him for calling Captain America Cap. She says, we're on it, Cap. There are all these bits happening in the background, but then this amazing bit where, because there's a couple of moments where Thanos almost gets the gauntlet, where I think, interestingly, they make him look not pathetic in the sense of being weedy or whatever, but like animalistic, like when he's charging towards it. He's like just a bully. Yeah, he's overwhelmed. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's also Ebony Moore makes a delightfully unwelcome reappearance saying, Sire! Pointing at him being hoisted the loft. <laughs> As Martin Ruddick described him, Space Norman Teddy. He's living up to that here. Yeah. But that's when, suddenly he's about to get it, when Scarlet Witch steps into his path, roars, you took everything from me. Oh, yes. I don't even know who you are. You will. And she lifts him aloft and starts ripping off his armour, the implication being she will dismember him next. At which point he screams, rain fire. Now, this is a bit that I cannot take seriously. (laughs) Corpus Glaive replies saying, but sire... Our troops. It sounds exactly like crying. <laughs> <laughs> An excellent suggestion, oh, sir. Just two major drawbacks. One, our troops. And two, our troops. I would love to have just, just added a little cry in the background. That turns into quite a tense moment as well, because they do start just firing these massive energy beams down from Thanos' ship. And you see things like, you actually Korg, Thor's stone mate, you know, the originator of stone clearing, <laughs> get knocked aside by a blast. It happens really quickly. And then they a stop. Blast, surely. Then it stops, and Friday confirms to Tony Stark that something's entered the upper atmosphere. And it's Captain Marvel who just sides through the ship and destroys it, gets the gauntlet, and whizzes off towards the tunnel. And it's only stopped when Thanos, in desperation, throws his axe into the tunnel and blows up the van. But again, it's scrappy. It's not like I am a baddie and I've got all the ideas and the heroes fight and then they, they do it you know there's constantly oh 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 you know it's like it, it pulls in so many different ways you genuinely don't know what's going to happen even though it has to sort of end one way but you, you don't know yeah because he gets the gauntlet and a number of people try to stop him physically and almost almost succeed but he kind of flings them away obviously captain marvel has two goes at yeah. him at one point just taking a headbutt from him directly without flinching but then this isn't all powerful guy this is him having to resort to something he takes the power stone off the gauntlet and punches her with it and brilliant acting from Brie Larson just with her eyes she shows a kind of oh yeah. shit it's weird so since we've met her in 19 it's 95 Captain Marvel set isn't it so much has happened since 
that she's kind of got used to being the ultimate badass. So it's like, oh, she'll come and save us. Oh, and you need that. Because obviously they bring up the whole, you know, where were you? And she says, you know, there's a lot of planets, not all of them have an Avengers. It makes perfect sense that she's not OP. She's not just coming in and right, solve that for you. Ta-ra! Then the final confrontation, which puts pay to Thanos' plans. Now, understandably, I'll admit, I couldn't figure it out at first. A lot of people aren't quite sure what happened there. I mean, what's your take on it? I do think there's a little shift in we need this to be happening here and let's not really worry about that. There's a little bit of a question mark profit kind of situation there because obviously it's ultimately about how Tony's... It's all Tony's story, effectively, from Iron Man 1 starting it where he's a very selfish man to becoming the most selfless. But apparently how he got the stones from Thanos' gauntlet onto the Iron Man armour was supposed to be... Now, I think they should have explained this more clearly, that he'd made the Avengers sort of replacement gauntlet... Using Stark nanotechnology, and the idea was that if he touched the gauntlet, they just ma- he could ma- command yeah, the nanobots to, to swap one for the other. Mm, yes, yeah, it isn't very clear no, though. I I d- again, it, but it's just one of those kind of movie bits where just like I didn't think about it, but actually, yeah, it makes perfect sense. That it doesn't make sense, you know what I mean? And then he snaps his fingers, all of Thanos' army disappear. I mean, there's a great bit where, because obviously there was that harrowing bit in Infinity War when M'Baku was just watching people disappear, not understanding what was going on. And then he sees Thanos' minions disappearing and looks kind of satisfied, like, yeah, that's a job well done. One by one, they all go, but obviously Tony was built to handle the stones. It's weird because Stark's death makes perfect sense it's got as i said this is his arc this is the birth of iron man to the death of iron man effectively but still it's a fantastical world and you think but not to worry because you know dr strange is going to say something and he's going to be all right and he's not as you say in infinity war when people are disappearing when spider-man goes and he just says i'm sorry it breaks your heart and obviously that's his main reason for coming back into the fight in this one it's weird how that bond between Peter and Tony is ultimately Spider-Man's us he's our avatar into it sort of thing he's the come on come on you'll be alright and he's not then we get obviously once everything's sort of tidied up we get the funeral were they even mourning characters yeah and also Hawkeye's kids are taller than him <laughs> yeah. again and that weird lad who everyone's like who the frig is that Yes, yes, Stuart Lee kid, as I called yes. him, who is actually a much older version of Harley from Iron Man 3. But how were you supposed to recognise no. him? He looks completely yeah. different. I mean, it's good that he's there. Once you know it is, it makes perfect sense. But yeah, it's a proper wake. And it's not just a wake for Tony Stark. It's a wake for not the MCU as a total thing, but to this point, it's very much a underlining of that's that. From now everything's different. Yeah, because we then see people returning to their previous lives and obviously the Wakandans and Peter Parker back at school and apparently that leads more or less directly into Spider-Man Far From Yeah, I think that's the only comfort you get really to know that there's a Spider-Man film. Obviously now, you know, when they're all out, it doesn't matter but when you saw it in the cinema and knowing there's a Spider-Man film coming out in like six weeks or so, that's the only comfort you get really. Well, you say that but I was really touched by the scene of Scott Hope and Scott's daughter Cassie all sitting on their porch just looking really happy to be back yeah. together their relationship almost got lost amongst everything else but to them that was their victory that was their arc that they had their family yeah. back 
and that Cassie wasn't taller than them. Yeah, well, I suppose it's a cheesy thing to say, but it's family. It's ultimately about family. The Avengers is a big mixed family of people who've come together because they don't fit anywhere else. And they've all broken off. They've found their own happiness in a way. And there's also a family of a sort. Well, Rocket actually describes them as the only family I ever had. Drax, Quill, yeah. that chick with the antenna. The Guardians are back together. And, and they've got a new stepdad. Was... <laughs> yes, yes, somebody else without a family. Yeah. They are going to be in the next door oh, film, wait. which I'm really looking cannot forward wait. to. And then, of course, Captain America takes the stones back to their various points in history, doesn't reappear when Sam and Bucky are expecting him to. I mean, that, that's amazing, isn't it? Film this big, and we barely mentioned Bucky and Sam, oh, yeah, yeah. but they find him as a much older Steve who won't tell them what he did instead. Yeah, but he's lived a life. He has, and the very last shot we get of the entire Infinity Saga is Peggy Carter's eyes just looking happy at last rather than the haunted woman she'd been throughout all of the, particularly when you saw her as older in some of the contemporary yeah. films. It's a weird analogy to make, but it's like the start of Titanic where there's the old Rose and, you know, she's she only lights up when she starts talking about Jack. And I know that Titanic's not a good film, what have you, but it's definitely analogous to, to loss. And even though these are fictional characters and comic books and whatever, bloody, you know, Ken Loach and Jennifer Aniston and whatever, <laughs> everyone else <laughs> want to say, there is so much soul to these films. There is, and it isn't even the end of things, which I thought it'd be. Because obviously, as you say, there was a Spider-Man film coming out in six weeks, which I'd expected to just be a knockabout adventure, but it actually ties up a lot of the loose ends that couldn't be dealt with in Endgame from previous things that had yeah. happened. But also, the final season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., where nobody really saw this. I didn't expect this to come. They kind of, in the roundabout way, deal with a lot of the mess that was caused by the snap in between Infinity War and right. Endgame. They iron out some of the problems in time. Now, I'm not going to say go away and watch it because it does depend on you having watched the previous six series because there are returning characters and things, but it is one of the series that I've most looked forward to each week. Okay. In a very long time, that hasn't happened to me, but I was really excited thinking, oh, it's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. day today. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think... I'm not sure it'd make enough sense if you've not seen the previous 21 films. All right, maybe not Thor The Dark World, but it never feels like a challenge. It's like slipping into a very comfortable pair of slippers. It's just like, I want to spend time with these characters, and I am looking forward, as I say, to Guardians, to WandaVision, to all the Disney Plus stuff. I just like, these are characters I want to spend more time with. And I think that is... To have so many characters and, you know, to have all of them be interesting. Or at least, you know, ones that aren't surnamed Barton. But, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit, but you know what I mean. It's, I think I think they've done an incredible job. And also what's impressive is they are clearly not trying to just do that all over again to less impressive effect. Because you look at what's coming up. I mean, there are old characters coming back in, but there's a Kung Fu movie. There's a Vigilante in the Middle East. There's a lot of female characters coming yeah. in who in the comics all hang out together and discuss their dating problems and so on. Yeah. They're clearly going in that direction. I don't know what big comic storyline they're going to follow next. I mean, I've got some theories, but it's not going to be more of the same. No. I mean, they've even said there may not be another Avengers film. They may go in a different direction, which is quite a bold thing to well, do. yeah, really. I mean, considering, you know, it's the franchise. You know, when people who really like Lord of the Rings talk about Lord of the Rings, for example, that's what I got from this film. You know, the whole big battle sequences and all that. Breaks your heart to see Chadwick Boseman being so bloody good again yeah but i think this is karen gillen and downey jr's film i think they're the two real standouts in this i mean everyone's great in it as i said paul rudd 
comes a very close third. But yeah, I think it's their film because they're the ones that the journey is the most important to. That makes absolute sense to me and I can't argue with it. But there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Ben, if you had access to time travel via the quantum realm, what would you use it for? Uh- <laughs> now, on the caveat, you can't stop Captain Butler or a prince amongst men from being late. <laughs> no, just moving around the schedules to help the other programs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you should use it for. <laughs> oh, I, w- I would obviously bring back Kanicki because I'm a big fan. <laughs> you know, but I can't imagine any other sort of cataclysmic world things that should be changed by time. I don't, don't understand. <laughs> I'd be very happy with Kanicki the MCU. Ben, thank you, and Excelsior. I loved it 3,000. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me, at timworthington.org.